Uh, I was actually just thinking about my transition from sixth grade to seventh grade year. That was, that was a, just a few years ago for me, uh, but was thinking about it the other day and last night. And my, my own personal experience with that, with, with going to junior high, it actually, it wasn't that great. Uh, let me explain. My, my first moments of life in, in junior high, it opened up a whole set of teenage problems. Remember it pretty clearly, actually, it was the summer in between 6th and 7th grade. I was having the best summer. I was playing a lot of baseball. And I know you're not going to believe me, but I was also, like, really into rollerblading. And I know you're like, that's not possible. So I asked my mom to send some pics from the old family album. Here's a couple. That's me. It's a little, it's a little blurry. Uh, that's me in 6th grade. I also had a beard back then, and... I think that's a Walkman. Here's another shot of me still in sixth grade. Um, it looks like I'm falling, but I'm actually doing this super cool move. Yeah, those aren't me at all. But I swear I, I was rollerblading a lot back then. It was a great, great summer. It was a summer that any 12, 13-year-old would love. And then everything changed. My parents said, hey, but we want to talk. We've got some news. And I was like, what is this? Are we going on vacation? Is something amazing happening? And they said, actually, no. We're going to change up the plans for where you're going to go to school here in a couple weeks. Summer was almost over. And they're like, hey, instead of going to the school that I know you're looking forward to going to, the, the junior high where all your friends are at, we're going to send you to a different school where you don't know anybody. <laughs> I don't think they said it like that, but I was totally upset. I, I think there were tears. I'm sure I slammed my door, which was like one out of three times I ever did that. By the way, don't do that. Don't slam your door. Don't take it out on your door. Um, I did that, and I, I just remember the grief and being confused and upset. Felt like everything was out of control. And trials, which that was for me, a junior high-sized trial, it can feel like that, feel like our life is like basically over, that life is just forever going to be ruined. And as we get back into the book of Esther, and you might need some help finding that this morning, so maybe you could start making your way there now, the book of Esther, as we get back in to the book of Esther, God's people are facing a crazy trial. They too were upset and confused and in despair, just a state of chaos. I know there were tears and door slams in Esther chapter 4. They're really, really upset. they going through a trial and people feel like this with all sorts of trials. It isn't just going to a, a different junior high that makes you feel like this. Actually, God's people are facing a much more serious situation. They, they just found out they were all going to be killed. War, yeah, whoa is right. So confusion and chaos and sadness, those words perfectly describe God's people, as we find them at the beginning of chapter 4. 
They heard those words of Haman's horrible plan, a plan that was signed with the full weight of the king's authority. There was nothing they could do to to stop this. And so, as I look at these new seventh grade faces, I, I know that I'm really making you guys jump into the deep end of the pool here on your first Sunday morning. So maybe just a, a quick sort of recap of what's going on in the book of Esther. I think that might be helpful, maybe helpful for all of us. So let me just quickly say this. The book of Esther, and this would be good to write down, it doesn't mention God at all. We don't get to know what God's up to behind the scenes. There's no verse that talks about God or his actions or even mentions his name. And the absence of God's name and the absence of certainty of God's actions, it's actually meant to encourage us. And it's meant to fill us with hope. And you would say, how is that? Well, the answer is because Esther is just like our life. It's just normal life for us. We don't always get to know all the details of what God is doing. God doesn't send us a text message in the morning and say, hey, here's, what's, here's what I have in store for you today. We don't get to know that stuff. We have his word and we know who God is and we know what God is like because of his word. And the book of Esther forces us to, to take the truth that we have outside of it, the truth that we know about God in the Bible, and it, it makes us bring all of that into the story of Esther. And we're, we're so helped when we do that. We, we get to see what God has done and what he's doing and what he'll do. And it reminds us that even though we can't see God's actions like we can in other parts of the Bible, God is still completely in control. In Esther chapter 1, we met this really powerful and equally corrupt king. We focused on the truth that no matter how powerful some king or some leader or some ruler, no matter how powerful they look, Power belongs to God. That's the real truth that we're meant to see in Esther chapter 1. Psalm 6211 drives that truth home for us. Power doesn't belong to some king or ruler or president. It belongs to God. And, and then chapter 2, when we met Esther and her cousin Mordecai, and Esther just keeps winning favor with everyone that she meets. But it's favor that she isn't really seeking. And the situation that's happening to her, it isn't something she wants. But Esther becomes queen, and, and we identified another helpful truth in chapter 2. God uses flawed people. We see that over and over again in the Bible, which is good news for us because we're flawed too. We know God can use us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 helps us with that. And then a few weeks ago, chapter 3, and the scene changed in chapter 3 from pretty good to really, really bad. And it happened pretty quick. And God's people find themselves under a death sentence. This old rivalry of God's people and an, and an old enemy, it's rekindled. And it's a sort of this personal rivalry now between Haman and Mordecai. 
And that helped us embrace Romans 8.28, that even when we aren't sure what God is doing and we look around at life and we go, this looks awful. God, do you see this? God, do you care? Romans 8.28 reminds us that even that situation, God is working out for our good. God is in control and that even this has a good intention in the mind and plan of our God. We know God works all things for our good. And now this morning, as we get into Esther chapter 4, we need another important truth from God's word, another truth that will help us and help us understand Esther chapter 4. And it comes from the book of James. You could write that down. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. I'll read it for you. This is what it says. Count it all joy, my brothers and By the way, that also means sisters, so girls, you're included in that. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." It's not always easy to respond the right way to trials, is it? I know that there are a ton of junior high-sized trials going on right now in this room. It's not always easy to respond the right way when our world seems like it just got flipped upside down. We don't know what God is doing. Again, we cry and we're upset, and we're confused, but we need to always remember that God is doing something. We need to remember our our big idea for this morning, and in junior high, I always try my best to give you a big idea for what we're studying, and our big idea is this. Trials make us stronger, and they help us to live out God's plan for our life. I think that's what we're going to learn this morning. I know what's, what's here in Esther 4. Trials They make us stronger, and they help us to live out God's plan for our life. Even though trials are hard and difficult, they're so good for us as they grow us in our relationship with Christ. They help us get our eyes off of us. They help us live the way God has purpose for us to live. Let's look at Esther chapter 4. I'm trying to tiptoe you into junior high this morning. Eighth graders are used to this, but but seventh, not so much. Let's do this instead. Let's take this in sort of bite-sized chunks. Uh, We'll look at the first five verses, and we'll call that responding to the death sentence. Verses one to five, responding to the death sentence. Hopefully you found Esther chapter four. Here's what it says. God's word says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, And that's talking about this decree that Haman just had put into effect by the king. It says this, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting 
and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was, was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So again, the, the, the bomb had just dropped, so to speak. The, the news just hit. That decree that was issued, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 13, you'll, you'll find it. It was a devastating new law in effect. All the Jews, young and old and men and women, all would be destroyed, killed, and annihilated in one day. And now as we find Mordecai in verse 1 of chapter 4, this news has found him. He had learned all that had been done before. And his reaction reveals that he is really upset. It's really affecting him. He, he didn't just know about the decree, but his, I think his position and his place in this court, it allows him access to the whole story. He knows all the details. He knows exactly what's going on. Everything that Haman had said, everything that Haman had promised the king to, to put this new decree into effect. And what does verse 1 say about Mordecai? It's like a funny wardrobe change, isn't it? He tears his clothes and then he puts on sackcloth and ashes. What is that? You guys know what that is? Anybody have sackcloth and ashes at home? I didn't think so. It's, let me help us. This is the the Bible's way of pointing out when somebody is, is in really just deep grief. They put on sackcloth and ashes. When you and I are in deep grief, we, we go to our bed. We cry into our pillow, right? I know you do. You can pretend to be cool. I know you do. But the sackcloth is their way of expressing grief. In case you're looking to change up your grief game. The sackcloth was like a rough, dark cloth, a strong cloth made from camel hair or maybe goat hair. If you have a goat, maybe you could get one of these. It's basically an uncomfortable, dark shirt. And there was like ways to accentuate the grief. They would just pour ashes on themselves. So you have this uncomfortable, dark shirt, and now you're, you're, you're dirty, but that was the whole point. It's expressing just lots of grief. And so Mordecai, he's not hiding himself anymore. This man who once instructed Esther to, to keep hidden the fact that they were Jews, look at it. Now he's in the middle of the busy part of the city, and he's upset, and he's making a scene, and he's crying loud. And it's that ugly cry when, you know, every, it's, just, it's messy and it's, it's, it's serious. But he has to stop at the king's gate. He can't be allowed further access because of the way he's dressed. And then verse 3 chimes in that he's not alone. He's joined by all the Jews. This is what all the Jews are doing. Mourning and lamenting and grieving. Together they're, they're showing that they're all upset and they fast from eating. 
Not sure if you've heard of that before. Fasting, it's, it's to refrain from eating. Why would they do that? Well, often in the Bible, fasting is connected to, to people trying to draw God's attention to their situation. They, they fast. They, they, they want to be even more connected to God as they seek His wisdom, as they want His help. They don't eat so that they remember to, to, to be in this connection, this communication with, with God. Fasting is typical behavior marked by serious and genuine and very intentional prayer. But here, the author doesn't mention prayer. All of us probably need this reminder that not only is this book completely void of God's actions, but there are no human actions that point to any degree of godliness. Nothing. There's nothing concrete that that tells us of the, the relationship that these characters have with God. And it's that way on purpose. We don't get to know if they love God or not. Here in verse 3, where we expect fasting to be, to be connected with prayer, it isn't. And here's why. Because this story isn't about Esther. It isn't about Mordecai. It isn't about their great faith and their great prayer life. This is a story about God, God's purpose for them and his people. It would be accomplished. It doesn't matter how much Esther and Mordecai and the Jews pray or didn't pray. That's not what it's about. It's about God. The author wants us to know that this is about God doing what he wants to do. So he wants us to know, the author does, that the people are upset. This death sentence, it's, it's a horrible trial. In verse 4, Esther's like maids, they, they notice Mordecai and they let her know what he's doing. And Esther's response to this is also serious. It says she was deeply distressed. She was so seized by fear that even her body was kind of like shaking. Um, like when you fall off your bike or your skateboard and you're on the ground and you're kind of doing that thing where you're like rubbing your knee or your elbow or you're like your eye or whatever you landed on. It's kind of like that. She's so upset for her older cousin. She's like writhing in fear. We should assume here it's really just Mordecai's like sad outfit that she's upset about. That's why she sends him clothes because later she... She finds out about the decree. So Mordecai is just not dressed right. So let's send him clothes to fix the problem. And he refuses. Why? Look at verse 5. She needs to send Hathak to find out. This is a real problem. It's going to take more than clothes to fix this. Let's look at the second chunk. And we'll call it Mordecai's plea for providence. Mordecai's plea for providence. Verse 6 says, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised 
to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know this. If any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. I told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai knows that Esther is unaware and she'll need some serious evidence to be convinced to risk her life like this. Hathak will be given everything he needs to convince Esther of what's really going on. Mordecai tells him everything. Here's everything I know. I'm sure he mentioned the whole story, how he wouldn't bow down to Haman, how Haman was super mad because he wouldn't, and now the result of this decree. I'm sure he told him the exact amount of money that was promised by Haman to pull this whole thing off. So it's obvious that, that Mordecai's one intention is to express to Esther how serious this whole situation is. He just lays on the evidence. He knows he can't fix this problem on his own. He knows that this isn't just a problem for him. This is a ginormous problem. This is an issue for all Jewish people. In verse 8, Mordecai knows the best play at this point was Esther. She would have to do something. She would have to beg and plea with the king to, to please reverse this. Please stop this. Verse 8 helps us understand now she would have to reveal her identity, what she had been working so hard to, to keep covered. Now she's going to have to say, these are my people. In this great conflict, identifying with her people and identifying with her faith is more important than just figuring out how to stay alive and maybe even how to prosper in this dangerous kingdom. Getting along with the king and the people in the court, that's not the main thing anymore. It isn't about that. This is about something else. This is about now preserving God's people. And some people suggest that, that Mordecai had ignored God in, in, in a plan for deliverance. Some think that this is an answer to his prayer and fasting. And I'm going to sound like a broken record, but here it is again. The author doesn't tell us. 
And so we can only assume one thing. We do not need to know. We don't need to know. All we need to know is that this is the beginning of God working behind the scenes to deliver his people here. God's faithfulness to his promise, it just doesn't depend on the faithfulness of his people. This is to show us that God is the hero. Esther argues what everybody already knows. Mordecai should know this as well. This is a big, uh, hello, I can't do what you're asking me to do. Did you forget? It's against the law to just waltz into the king's presence. Come on, Mordecai. I have to be summoned first. And verse 11 makes her case. She presents the whole situation By the way, if I go and I'm not summoned, there's only one thing that happens. Death. That's just what happens. Doesn't matter who it is. And there's only this one small exception clause. The king can extend that golden scepter if he wants, if he chooses. But don't be too hopeful. The king hasn't even wanted to see me in the last month. I don't, what, what you're asking me to do is so dangerous. A risky situation. And Mordecai needs to know what he's asking Esther to do. He's, and Esther's worried that the favor she's found with him has, has cooled a bit. If he's in a bad mood, there's a good chance I don't come back from this. Seems like she's wondering if there isn't another option here. Is there something else we could try? So she sees the complex problem, just doesn't see a way through it yet. And Mordecai's response in verse 13 is so blunt. There's no time to waste. You're not safe either. You're going to die either way. And it's such a strangely famous verse in verse 14. Welcome to junior high. (laughs) Verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance, it's going to rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther can't keep silent. But if she does, Mordecai's confident. Deliverance will still come. It's just that we aren't sure what he's confident in. What is this another place that deliverance might come from? Does Mordecai mean God? We don't know. We're not, we're not sure. And this is about as close to God as we come in this whole book. But the point is this. Even in the palace, it's going to be impossible for Esther to escape. Even there, she's not safe. Mordecai is confident That deliverance will come, though, with or without Esther. I believe that confidence is meant to make readers ponder the possibility of God's involvement. It's meant to make us ask that. God, and it's it's meant to make us see God's plan can't be stopped. Mordecai's questions, they they lead Esther to think about providence, and, and who knows, perhaps she's been placed in this position just so she can serve God's purposes. 
Maybe this whole thing, this whole weird season, this trial, all this crazy stuff that's happened to get you into the palace, maybe you're there for this. And it's, it's a great question that so many of God's people have had to think about throughout the years. God, what are you doing? Because we can't know in advance what he's up to. I think of Joseph in in the book of Genesis. You guys remember Joseph, right? His brothers had bad intentions for him. They wanted to kill him, and then they tried to sell him, and then all this horrible stuff happens to Joseph. But in the end, he ends up not only rescuing and saving his brothers and his family, but all of God's people. And he says, what you meant for evil, God, God meant it for good. In the face of it, I'm sure Joseph often wondered, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? There was no easy answer. God definitely asks us to do difficult things. And all of us, very first one for all of us is the same, to believe in the gospel and turn from our sin. That's, that's a very difficult thing that God asks us to do. I wonder how many of you feel like becoming a Christian is this impossible and difficult thing that, that God's asking for you, that submitting your life to God's purposes for you, it seems so big, it seems so difficult, it seems so impossible. God's asking me to do so much. It's just too high a cost. Perhaps God has placed you where you are for such a time as this to hear the gospel and to be convicted and to sit under the teaching of his word so that you'll experience his plan for you, his purposes for you to be saved. This is where God's desire begins for you and his way is always the best way. Even though the Christian life can be scary from time to time, one thing for sure, the older you get, I promise you, the more you'll realize how way more scary life is without God. Welcome to junior high. Number three, I want to look at this last little bit real quick, and we're going to call it Esther's strength. Esther's strength, verse 15 to 17. Verse 15 says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther is now in control. Esther is now the one giving orders and Mordecai's listening. Gather all the Jews and fast for three days. And these are severe conditions. No food, no water, no breaks. The, the fast was even to last through the night. It's a tough fast, but Esther and her girls are going to join in. And it's so interesting when we think of the info that this whole story tells us. I know the, the new seventh grade class it doesn't Remember this because you weren't here. And, but it's, here's, here's the timeline of this whole thing. This decree was issued the day before Passover. 
the day before all of God's people would be celebrating and would be feasting and would be living it up and they'd be happy and joyful and it'd be this big celebration as they remembered how God had delivered them from Egypt. I guarantee a fast is not what any of them are expecting for Passover this year. And Esther has a tough decision to make. She needed wisdom to figure this out and and courage to see it through. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, and he had promised David in 2 Samuel 7, the same promise that there would be a future descendant from this line and his kingdom would last forever and ever. God's plan would endure. And even if Esther knew that promise, and we have no clue if she does or not, even if she does know, she certainly doesn't know what that means for her. God would keep his promise but maybe it would cost her her life. But she's willing to do it anyway. This trial is producing in Esther strength. James says steadfastness. That's, that's kind of what that means. It's, it's producing in her such strength for what God's asking her to do. Her, her faith being strengthened and it's helping her to live out God's plan for her life. It's hard not to see the result of this trial in her life. And they all push pause on the celebration and they fast. And again, that word fast, it makes us think of prayer. Is, is it meant to be linked with prayer? Is this a three-day focused time of of seeking God's help and protection and favor. Again, we don't get to know. It seems probable. I think so. But again, we, we, we don't know. But what we do know for sure is of the faithfulness of God to use these flawed people. Esther commits herself to the challenge ahead. She'd break the law knowing what happens to those who broke the king's law. Vashti was banished for it in chapter one. Those two dudes in chapter two, Bigthin and Teresh, they were hanged for for breaking the king's law. And this whole situation they find themselves in, this is because Mordecai broke the king's law. It's dangerous to do it. But despite all that, Esther will break the king's law, and she vows to do it regardless of the outcome. If I perish, I perish. Like all people, Christians, just like everybody else, they experience trials and difficulty. We get sick, just like everybody else. We have disappointments, just like everybody else. We aren't always treated fairly, just like everybody else. Christians all experience the effects of sin. We all experience disasters. We all experience death. God may also allow people who oppose him to oppose us as believers, to treat us badly solely on the basis that we love Jesus and we choose to follow him. It's called persecution. Sometimes God allows that to happen. Those are trials, all that stuff, difficult situations. 
But Esther 4 focuses on one that's a little different. The kind of trial where God may ask you to leave your place of comfort, your place of ease, a spot in life that you know so well. All the new seventh graders in here this morning are, should be saying amen. That's what happened to us today. God may call us to go where we have no security, where we have no certainty of knowing what will happen. And it might be really scary, and it might be a dangerous and difficult situation, but God asks us to do that, testing our faith, knowing that it makes us stronger so that ultimately we can serve Him better. Ultimately, we can serve His purposes for His people better. We go and we do. God wants us to surrender our lives fully and without reservation. You know what I find to be true amongst junior hires? We love to say we submit our whole life to God. God, you can have all of my life except this one little part. God, I will surrender the whole thing. I will do whatever you want except, God, just this one little thing. This part is for me. You can't have that. God helps us to see here that calls us to do these difficult things and we're we're called to surrender wholly and fully. We're called to live by faith on behalf of our king and the people in his kingdom. And just like Esther, you and I don't know what God has in store for today and tomorrow. But we learn from Esther that the trial was good for her. It strengthened her faith. Where God has laid open this challenge, whatever that looks like, we're to consider the cost and we're to make the informed decision and we're to follow where he leads. And like Esther, we should be able to say, if I perish, I perish. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. God, thank you for this great truth on display in the book of Esther, how trials strengthen us for the better. They strengthen us to submit to your your purpose for our life. God, how we can be quickened in our response to insist on the truth in our heart rather than be spun further out of control by some lie. God, when trials come, help us to be grateful that you're growing our faith, that you're making us more like Christ and less like us. Father, I pray for this new class in junior high this morning, how your timing for them, I know, is perfect. God, that you might even use a message like this on day one to help them see that even today you're drawing them closer to you. Lord Jesus, that you want them to to know that you love them, that you died for them on the cross, that the first thing you're asking them to do is to repent and believe in the gospel. Your plan for their life begins with their salvation. God, help us to know that truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing one more song together.
When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my home through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, He will hold me fast. Raised with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned aside When He comes at last He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so He will hold me fast he will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. As we dismiss this morning, if you have any questions about anything in that sermon or questions about the gospel, uh, please come talk to me or any of the other leaders in here this morning. Uh, we want to make sure that we're answering your questions about God and his word, okay? Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then you guys will be dismissed to go to second hour. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, again, we praise you for this morning. Uh, be with this ministry this year, Father. Watch over us 
today as we head to second hour and even throughout this day, God, may we be attentive most to your word. Help us to write the truth of it on our heart. We pray in Christ's name, amen.